board is out with its 10th annual trend report. Welcome back to Textonation. I'm Fred Fishkin, and we're happy to have with us Ford's chief futurist, Cheryl Connolly. Hi, Cheryl. Hi, Fred. Thanks for having me back. Anybody who's called a futurist is, is, is terrific in my book. So tell us about this report and what you are taking a look at. I've been doing this work inside of Ford for 18 years. And it's funny because when I first started doing the work, we never discussed it publicly. It was this thing about like, I could tell you, but then I have to kill you sort of information. Because we thought it was really strategic. It can form the direction where we're going. And then 10 years ago, we decided to start making some of the information public. And what we learned quickly is that the more we share, the better the work became. So that's great. Um, but to mark our 10 year anniversary, we historically looked kind of more near term. But to mark the 10 year anniversary, we said, let's go long term. Let's think long term macro trend, things that are going to be around for decades. And the first thing that we wanted to point out is that when you ask people to think about the distant future, it's not for the faint hearted. I mean, the things that we are beyond our control or that make us uncomfortable, things that we have absolutely no ability to influence, make people anxious. Um, and the question is why? Like, I don't believe that you can predict the future. Just despite my exotic title, I know you cannot predict the future, but you can prepare for it. And that's what we we're hoping to start a discussion about today was how do you get people to prepare for it? And we thought if we put together some provocative statements, some data that actually cause people to think, you know, what if this were to happen? How would I react? Would it be happy? Would it be sad? Would it be good for my community? Would it be bad for my family? And just to start thinking through that, because while I don't think you can predict the future, I do believe we have the ability, even on an individual level, to drive or create a future that's most beneficial to us. Well, some of the things that you looked at, some of the points, one, the future of our planet, which, as you mentioned, I think can, can be scary to think about. But people are worried about some different things, really, although there, there are one or two that are certainly at the top. Yeah, there are so many things to be, there are many things for which to be worried about. And, you know, generally speaking, we ask people, do you think you're ready for the future? And three out of 10 people said, no, they're not mentally prepared for it. But when we start asking specific questions as it related to sustainability, the environment, the sustainability or health of the planet in general, 81% of the people we spoke to in 15 different countries said that climate change makes them worry for their children's future. And more, I think, interesting than that is that 40% of the adults that we spoke to in Canada said that climate change was one of the reasons they didn't want to have children. 30% of the, those who said they want to have children did so because um, came from France or India, Mexico and Germany were slightly lower. But to imagine that we have a generation of people that are like, I don't know. I don't know if I should procreate. I don't know if it's good for the planet. And that I thought was a really kind of sobering moment. Absolutely. And there's another uh, issue that probably wouldn't have come to the fore a few years ago, at least uh, at least this high up, and that's viruses, right? No, I think people really, you know, COVID has been... Um, game changer, right? It's just about the way that we see the lens, see, see the world. And in some ways, ironically, it's good for people like me, you know, as a futurist, my goal is to help people learn to expect the unexpected. And we're so accustomed to the status quo business as usual, it's really hard to imagine the future being different. And COVID, I think, was a 
sober moment that we all realized that things can change in very, very rapid fashion. Two years ago, well, excuse me, well, a year ago, we asked people when they thought the world would return to normal. And 40, I think it was 44% of the people we spoke to worldwide said it'd take one to two years. But there are about 8% of people that said that they'll never return to normal. We repeated that question again for this survey, but with a little bit more nuance. We asked about work, entertainment, travel, and retail. And in all of those categories, there's about 10 to 14% that say none of those things will ever be back to what it used to be. And I think for me personally, I find myself more in that camp that there are things that are irrevocably changed, that there's no going back to the way it used to be. Um, particularly even when you think about travel, you know, we, as we go to the second, third, fourth chapter of COVID, people are saying like, well, what does testing look like? When do you have to be tested? What, you know, we're learning to carry around our vaccination cards. We went to, my husband and I went to a comedy show and he caught, caught a little flat footed when he's like, oh, wait, they're going to need proof of vaccination. And he was the only one in our party that had not like downloaded it to their favorite photos. So they had it ready to go. Um, but I think this is going to be, these are like the subtle shifts that we are making that will stay with us for a long time. And then when I think about work, um, Ford just recently announced that we had hoped to kind of return to some sort of work in office. And it was always going to be a hybrid approach, but we just extended it again to March, um, March of 2022. That means we have not worked in a traditional work setting for two years. Um, and we've all learned to adapt and some people have done better than others, but after 24 years of change, excuse me, 24 months of change, I don't know like that it, it could ever go back to what it looked like in 2019. And while a lot of people I'm sure crave the, the social atmosphere of returning to the office and uh, many companies see benefits there too, they're also seeing benefits in people working from home and being spread out and the ability to hire people, you know, from a thousand miles away that, that weren't available to them before. So for companies, there are benefits. And for many people, parents, they're, they're finding a lot of benefits to being home and doing their work. One of the things that I think is really interesting that I like about our report is that it has that like your, your audience can actually when, uh, the site is up on December 9th, they can go in and look at the material themselves, but you can click through by country. So you have a global number where 13% say that work will return to, will never return to normal. But if you compare that to the United States, the number jumps up to 24%. In Canada, it's 27%. Um, and the UK, 22%. Now, it's just fascinating to me that you have these Western kind of points of view that says like, it, we can do it. And I think, we, I think what we surprised was our employer, like at how much work we've done. There are anecdotal stories about um, productivity increasing. Now, of course it depends on what type of work that you do. And the other thing that I would say from a consumer side, and we're always looking at things through this lens of the consumer, there's something that's called, um, let me think back and it's called skimplation. I've never heard the expression before, but, like what's happening is that we're getting used to paying the same amount or slightly more for less. We're waiting longer in lines at the retail stores. We're seeing a smaller rest, a smaller restaurant menu or longer line or fewer options or you know just a spectrum of offerings have all kind of shrunk. Um, and so 
I think that's also part of the adjustment that's happening. And uh, well, of course, the supply chain issues, and you kind of alluded to them here too, are, are with us for now. And we're all hoping that those things go away. I know, I sure know Ford is hoping those things go away. Let's talk about mobility and transportation, because you took a look at the future of mobility there too, and attitudes there. And obviously Ford and and others, all of your counterparts really are, are seem to be jumping into a, a brand new era yeah, for mobility. So let's talk long-term and then work our way back closer to near term, okay? So I don't know about you, but I grew up watching reruns of the Jetsons. And so I've been a long time waiting for my flying car. Um, I've kind of given up on that notion of the flying car. Maybe I, I shouldn't say never say never, but 38% of men worldwide believe that by 2050, they actually will have a flying car. Um, and it'll be really interesting to see if they're right. And I think, you know, you can see where that notion comes from. I mean, when we look to, um, when we look to delivery of goods now, we know that it's their drone delivery is possible. And while I don't think it's quite yet the norm, I don't anything. I don't think any of us would be surprised um, by seeing you know more and more packages come about that way. And it's we did ask a question about like uh, in my lifetime, um, forty two percent of the people we surveyed said that they think traffic jams are more likely to occur in the sky than on the ground. So I think, you know, when we think long term, that could happen. And even we looked at kind of travel to other planets. Like, could you ever travel to other planets for leisure? 47% um, of adults said that they could imagine that during their lifetime. The younger you are, the more likely you are to agree. So for instance, um, Generation Z, Zoomers, if you will, um, 18 to 24, 57% agree. And only 34% of baby boomers agree with that statement. But I know what you probably more want to talk about are things like self-driving vehicles and electric vehicles, and those are much more near term. Um, self-driving vehicles, still a little ways off, um, but there are a good number of people that tell us that um, when they think about a self-driving vehicle or an autonomous vehicle, um, we know that 45% of them say that they'll feel safer in a self-driving vehicle than a vehicle driven by a human being. I think there's something really powerful there. And studies we've done in previous years, we found that 67% of adult survey told us they'd rather have their child ride in a self-driving vehicle than ride with a stranger. So there, I think there shows real interest um, on what that could look like. And even about vehicles that we own, when you think about autonomous vehicles, it, it throws into um, the conversation, who owns those vehicles? If self-driving vehicles, do they do they go to the, to the owner operator or do they go to the um the passenger and what we know is that one in four gen zers tell us that they would rather have a vehicle sharing service than own their own vehicle if costs are exactly the same and the interesting thing there is that uh if it's a service there's a likelihood at least if we're going to see the, the real benefits from it that these would be shared rides so i guess people are going to have to take a look at it and say well they don't want their John to run with a stranger, but this new mobility may may require that that kind of mindset. Yeah. So I I think there's something powerful there, and it kind of ties where we start out with the planet. You know, there's this notion of if we continue to consume the way that we always have, does the planet have enough resources 
provide everybody the opportunity to own and operate their own vehicle. And what does that mean for global gridlock? But let's move to near term, because I think that's the thing that people can mostly get their head around. And that's the um, electric vehicle revolution that I think is afoot right now. And I think it's exciting. And it seemed to happen so fast. I mean, it was, um, you know, Ford is saying that we expect um, it, that by 2030, I think it is, 2030, 40% of our portfolio will be fully electric. And in places like Europe, 100% of our passenger vehicles will be electric. And um, I think close to 67% of our commercial vehicles in, in um, Europe will be, also be electric. So this is a total mindset for us, you know, mindset shift for us. And you can see it in the investments that we're making and the Blue Oval City that we've announced in recent months. Um, so I think it's an exciting time. And I think it's exciting in part because this is talking about the creating the future that we most want. Like when we look at consumer data, 70% of consumers say that they are actively changing their behavior to fight climate change. But when you look a little bit deeper, it's like less than half of them are willing to take on any sort of sustainability initiative that results in some minor inconvenience at all. And so what we're trying to do is an approach that says, okay, people don't wanna make sacrifices and they don't have to when you purchase a vehicle like a Mustang Mach-E or the F-150 Lightning. Like where I think we're reconceiving the notion of what sort of trade-offs people have historically had to anticipate when they moved into an EV. And now we know you can still have mileage and muscle. You can still have advanced technology. You can still have um, far-reaching innovations on these iconic nameplates that suggest a whole new future of what this will look like for the industry. And I suppose that's going to open up another debate as we have all of these electric vehicles about the grid and what we're going to do about it and the power, the power sources that we're going to rely upon. Uh, that's, that's going to be key to all of that being successful. Isn't it? And indeed, I mean, we are looking right behind that as well. You know, where, where, how do you, how do you charge this? Where does it come from? And, you know, like AVs, I think the, the answers to those solutions don't lie with OEMs exclusively. You know, there's a whole ecosystem around it that uh, what do policies want to do? How will policymakers want to do? What will it mean for city cities and how they develop urban landscapes? What does it mean for commercial opportunities, commercial enterprise? How will they monetize that? So there's a whole lot of um, things that we're still trying to figure our way through, but I think it's exciting. And I think it is a turnkey moment for us. Really interesting and exciting. And where is it that people can go to to get more information on, on this report? So they could go to FordTrends.com. FordTrends.com is the website. Cheryl Connolly, thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. Now this. It takes a lot of listening to build a better radio. And that's just what the folks at Sea Crane have done. Bob Crane and his crew, nestled among the rivers and tallest trees in the world in Fortuna, California, have made a habit of listening to their customers. And that's just what they've done in building the CC Skywave SSB, the Swiss Army knife of portable radios. For everyday listening to AM or FM in the yard or patio or on the nightstand, without having to drain a mobile phone battery, it's a great companion. But it is also a companion equipped for NOAA weather information and alerts that can be life-saving. 
You can listen to FEMA and Coast Guard transmissions, too. Beyond all of that, you can tune into shortwave signals from around the world. It's compact, easy to take with you, and built to last. The CC SkyWave SSB. Click on the link at textonation.com.